Hello and welcome to the Queen's Reading Room podcast, the place where we invite lovers of literature to share with us their bookish confessions. What are the titles they take down in moments of joy or sorrow? And what treasures might we find in their own reading rooms, whether that's a bedside book stack or a full-scale library? Last week, we were joined by the extraordinary thinker, humanitarian and author Elif Shafak. Today, we meet a comedian, presenter, screenwriter, children's author and writer for adults. Best known for his comedic genius and long-running partnership with Frank Skinner, you may even have seen him pop up in Horrible Histories. I'm Vicky Perrin, Chief Executive of the Queen's Reading Room, and I'm inviting you to join us as we step into the reading room of David Baddiel to explore the books he simply couldn't live without. Let's begin at the beginning with the books from David's childhood. I used to read all the standard children's books. I used to also read comics, which I think quite important, actually, uh, in my early understanding of storytelling. I used to read, you know, I mean, obviously Batman and all that, but also, and and the Beano and the Dandy, but I also used to read comics called New Gods, which were sort of fantasy comics from America. I was very obsessed with them. And then there was also one other weird glitch in my reading, which was um, my mum, who was an obsessive collector, used to at one point collect children's books old children's books and she foisted on me Billy Bunter books. She would take me to the old boys book club meetings and old boys book club were people who were fans of Billy Bunter books. But the unfortunate thing is that meant that I would be at meetings. She would drop me off at the meetings, which would be all over London or wherever. And everyone else, I would be 11, everyone else would be 70. So I would be sitting there listening to, you know, 70 year old people talk about how they used to own a Billy Bunter book when they were 12 in 1914 and waiting for the jam tarts and tea that would often come after about two hours. Uh, and uh, I've never really forgiven her for that. But um, but I did read a lot. I did read a lot. I'm actually in the young... It's very embarrassing. Uh, I have the pictures. Uh, I was in the Young Observer, uh, which I don't think exists anymore, but I was an article about me in the Young Observer when I was about 12, uh, backed by an enormous collection of Billy Bunter books. Do you want me to tell you something that's incredibly embarrassing? I can't really tell you, but anyway, I, you know, I am a truth teller. Is the most embarrassing thing about that article, which I have somewhere, is I'm growing out of Billy Bunter books by the time that article is. And to try and sound clever, what I say at the end of it is, uh, at the moment, actually, I'm rather captivated by James Bond. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say. Across the course of his career writing for children, David has deeply felt the inspiration, if complicated, of Roald Dahl. In particular, there's a storytelling technique the classic children's author employed, which has provided an inspirational template for David's work. He was the first person, I think, to outline the modern idea of what a sort of comic uh, children's book should be. Uh, And if you look at, say, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, what that is, is what my books are, really, which is wish fulfillment. So you take a wish fulfillment idea, which in his case would be children in a chocolate factory, but then you don't just leave it as wish fulfillment, you make it sort of jeopardy. 
Uh, that's how it becomes a story. That's how it becomes a novel. You put obstacles in the way of the fantasy. And I would say that's the same in, in all my children's books. I mean, to use a, an obvious example, I wrote a book called Birthday Boy, which is about a boy who wishes for his birthday every day. And then that happens. And then things go really wrong. Like he eats too much cake. Uh, he doesn't have enough room in his house for the presents, you know, blah, blah, blah. All these things happen that he hadn't thought about with the wish. You have to sort of be careful what you wish for structure. And I think Roald Dahl really outlined that in a lot of his books, that they are of both fantasy and danger involved in them. Um, I also think, to be honest, that David Williams has been quite important in the modern understanding of children's books because he did definitely, you know, bring a modern comic sensibility to children's books, and I think that's quite important as well. Uh, but in all honesty, I basically just started writing. Uh, my son gave me an idea. My son said to me, Dad, why doesn't Harry Potter run away from the Dursleys? I mean, you could say I'm influenced by J.K. Rowling in this respect, but it wasn't J.K. Rowling. It was my son saying, why doesn't Harry Potter run away from the Dursleys and try and find some better parents? And just that line gave me the idea for my first children's book, which was The Parent Agency, which is a world in which children can choose their own parents. And I literally just wrote from that idea. I didn't, I mean, I didn't go and read lots of children's authors. I just, I'd already written, you know, a number of novels by then. And I felt I could write that book. I mean, you know, where would I be without Ezra? I mean, he's given me the idea for a lot of children's books. I mean, not just him, actually, you know, children, uh, my publisher's child, uh, who is now no longer a child, but I wrote a book called Head Kid, uh, which is about a, um, I'm the naughtiest boy in the school. It's always the same school in my children's book. It's called Bracketwood. The naughtiest boy in the school swapping bodies. It's a body swap thing with a very strict head teacher who's been brought in to, you know, to crack, sort out the school. Uh, and that idea came from just him having a thought about... Uh, it wasn't exactly his thought, but it was about the school and about the, a naughty boy in the school and whatever. And so I listened to children and then I, I sort of like think, oh, yeah, this is what children are thinking. So maybe I can make a story out of it. So I'm always indebted to them. But Ezra, <laughs> with virtually Christmas, so he's about 17 or 80. He's now 19. But I think when he gave me the idea, or it was a much darker idea than virtually Christmas. It was basically an idea that Santa works for this very, very unpleasant sort of uh, monopoly capitalism company. And he's very screwed up about it. And he's sort of, you know, alcoholic and broken down and sort of hates himself for it and whatever. And it was sort of, that was Ezra's idea. And I made it slightly nicer. It's not that different. I made it slightly nicer, slightly more kid friendly, which was the idea that, um, you know, uh, in my story, Christmas is owned by a big sales company, inter-sales company called Winterzone. And they are doing really terrible things like trying to make Christmas happen seven times a year. And there's no one buys presents anymore. They just get them delivered by drones. And Santa doesn't really exist, although there are holograms of him. But the real Santa has kind of gone missing and blah, blah, blah. And a little girl, uh, an 11-year-old girl called Etta, having had in her... Uh, mind memories of what Christmas used to be like told to her by her grandmother, uh, who's no longer with us, decides Santa must be out there somewhere. Uh, and she sees a delivery guy, an old bearded delivery guy one day who works for, uh, you know, winter zone, but who's sort of broken down. She follows him and discovers something mysterious about him that I won't continue because that would give away the book. It does to some extent, the book illustrate my own love of Christmas. I think as a sort of Jew, who came from immigrant stock or whatever, and who didn't celebrate Christmas when I was young. I love Christmas. Um, I think it's to do with the fact that when I was young, we didn't do it. We just had Hanukkah. And then on the 25th of December, we'd be sitting around 
bleakly thinking of this great big party happening elsewhere. Uh, and so when I got old enough to sort of think, no, I'm going to enjoy Christmas, I, do- I always dived into it, you know, both feet and it loved it, loved all the tinsel, loved all the turkey, uh, loved all the Morgan Wise Christmas specials. And that sort of nostalgia for a kind of British Christmas has always stuck with me. To reread or not to reread is a question that any lover of literature will frequently find themselves coming up against. For David, the answer is to be found by using his ears over his eyes. So my eyes have started to fail. I mean, not in a, I'm not going to go blind, I don't think, but I can't read close up anymore very easily. I have to have reading glasses and I never know where my reading glasses are. And so I still obviously read books, but I tend to rely on audiobooks more now. And audiobooks have led me to reread. This happened very like an epiphany because I listened to Juliet Stevenson, Juliet Stevenson reading Middlemarch. And when Juliet Stevenson reads Middlemarch, it's like a revelation. I mean, I think Middlemarch is a great novel anyway, but listening to her do it is incredible because she is able to slightly nuance her voice so that you know who everyone is of the sort of 60 or so ensemble characters. You never have to do that thing like you have to do in War and Peace of like going back five pages and thinking, oh, I don't remember who that is. Because you know instantly your oral memory knows who it is, right? And also she just reads it beautifully. And so when I listened to Middlemarch, it was a sort of rereading, but it made me think, oh, this is undeniably the greatest novel written in English, is what I thought when she read it, which, which it is. Um, and so I have actually done quite a lot of that. Um, but I, so my favorite novelist is John Updike. And I have reread some of the Rabbit books. Uh, and I have thought, in fact, about Audible listening, re listening to some of them as well. My friend Frank Skinner once did an amazing thing while John Updike was still alive, which was, um, he couldn't get the actual books to him, uh, but he managed to get John Updike to sign some sort of plates uh, that stuck in the books, uh, some frontispiece plates, and they're addressed to me. Um, and they say things like, uh, thanks for reading my book, David, and good luck with the laughs and stuff like that, because frankly, he told him I was a comedian as well. Uh, and, th- and there's about four of those. I, I'm i not a massive rereader. I'll tell you why. I think it's because I'm very... Um, I feel always very under the cosh of mortality. Sorry to bring that up, but I do. I feel very like, you know, I don't have that long in the world. So rereading, although you may uncover all sorts of things, but it feels to me there's many, many things that I haven't read and won't read before I die. So I really should be reading new things while I possibly can. I find it quite difficult to get rid of books for two reasons. One is I told you my mum was a hoarder. Both my parents were collectors. Uh, They were both from, uh, well, sort of impoverished backgrounds in different ways. My dad was just working class, but my mum was a refugee from Nazism. And they had been very wealthy, but then lost everything. And as a result, both of them had this kind of slightly mad attitude to stuff, whereby they just wouldn't throw out anything. And I have inherited a bit of that, um, where I find it difficult to throw stuff out of books. Is part of that, and not least because I think a lot of people my age might feel this, which is that books feel to me like not just something you read, but something that are in your house that you feel comforted by the presence of. A topic many writers for children grapple with is that of technology. We asked David what it means to him and how books fit into the puzzle. 
for children, there are an enormous amount of sort of like technological distractions now. Not all of which are terrible, by the way. I don't, I'm not one of these people who thinks, oh, God, it's awful, it's awful. And some of it is awful and some of it isn't. Some of it's incredibly inventive and amazing or whatever. And certainly in my children, uh, some of their sort of amazing understanding and reference points or whatever definitely come from the internet, right? Um, but I do think that it also has a problem, which is that I think sort of the stamina the sort of emotional and intellectual stamina required to get into long form storytelling is more provided by books. It's hard to know exactly how you find a place where you think like I can completely lose myself in a long form story. If you're used to sort of 15 second clips on Instagram. Right. So I think that for kids developing in their brains, literally the shape of their brains, it's a good idea that they read books because then they'll learn that thing of like, oh, I really want to carry on reading this story. I don't want to move on to the next thing and the next thing. Because I think that's sometimes stimulating in the wrong way for children, right? For adults, everyone now often talks about mindfulness, right? They talk about mindfulness and peace and finding contentment, And I can't easily, my person can't easily find that in my own head. Uh, but I can find it sometimes when I'm listening to or reading books. I mean, actually, I've talked about this quite a lot, the audio thing, but I do find now that if I'm doing something I don't want to do, and by that I mean not something terrible, I mean like washing up right, or packing a bag or whatever, if I put on an audio book, it makes the whole experience much more pleasant. Uh, and I feel I can get into a headspace where, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel bored, I don't feel irritated or whatever. It instantly puts me in a place of, yeah, I guess mindfulness or whatever, where I'm, I'm connected to the storytelling. And it's... It is a magical thing, magical in, you know, I use magical in the loosest sense because I don't believe in any kind of magic. But what I mean is it's a sort of magical thing how much we are into story. Human beings are into story. We Everything the way we think, everything the way that we look in the world tells a story. We're sort of that is different from the animals, uh, that we imagine the world narratively, I think, our own lives, you know, history, all the rest of it. And so I think books are the, always going to be, however, whatever form they're in, whether it be audio books or the written page or whatever it is, that's always going to be the primary form of that. And I think you're only, you have to stay connected to it. David is not only the author of novels, children's books and non-fiction, but he's also written extensively for TV, with shows ranging from topical sketch comedy to several acclaimed documentaries. Recently, we had a chat with another brilliant TV writer, Simon Nye, who twice adapted Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals, once for the BBC and once for the ITV series The Durrells, starring Keely Hawes, Josh O'Connor, Milo Parker, Daisy Waterstone and Callum Woodhouse. We asked him about the challenges of adapting beloved stories and his favourite Durrell family members. Let's take a listen. Sadly, you're always going to offend somebody when you adapt a book into TV, and it, particularly books, actually, because people, you know, clutch them literally to their hearts. But I hope people, readers, who even who sort of love the book and know it inside out, will realise that a TV show is a different thing and you need to expand and there are different requisites. People that haven't read the books want a story to move quickly and there's a lot of lovely chapters in my family and other animals which do just focus on the, the quiet pleasures and we try to capture the quieter moments but basically you want rip-roaring stories you need a lot of characters who are funny dramatic have problems hate each other half the time love each other the rest of the time and also we did a something which i think was helpful was that we changed the focus slightly from gerald who's obviously wrote the book 
to his mother, Louisa, who had this family of four children who were tricky sometimes, lovely most of the time, but had their particular things. These are fantastic characters, and, and I think the best way of looking at them was via the, the mother. She tries to control them, although I hope we did justice to Jerry and his quiet pleasures of going off and just sitting there. I know from having four children myself that you're really not supposed to pick a favourite. And I do love them all. I genuinely love all the all the Darrells, all four of them. And um, maybe Margot, though, because she's so daft at times, but also just lovely, really. And she's visibly sort of making it up as she goes along. She's living with three brothers, and they're not always very interested in her opinions. Uh, I've tried not to oversimplify her because she's just lovely. And she was just a, a gift for a writer. I urge you to find your own favourite um, and uh, and love them all a little bit. As you know, in each episode of this podcast, we put a question to the Queen about her own reading room. This time we asked, does your Majesty have a favourite era for a historical novel to be set in? I think the 18th century, you know, I love everything from the 18th century, whether it's some tale of two cities or Treasure Island, you know, they've got all the great writers in there. And I think we've got a lot of favourites in every century, but I think on the whole, I think the 18th century is probably my favourite. Just before we go, let's hear a favourite line of literature from one of our guardians of this nation's reading rooms. Children's librarian Jessica from Middlesbrough Central Library. I didn't know where we were going and I didn't care. I knew the dish would take us there. From The Adventures of the Dish and the Spoon by Minnie Gray. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Queen's Reading Room podcast. We're a charity on a mission to spread the joy of books and reading. You can find out more about what the Queen is reading and what she recommends by joining her book club on Instagram at the Queen's Reading Room or by checking out our website, thequeensreadingroom.co.uk, for more fabulous literary treasures. Next time, we take a hop, skip and a jump across the pond to chat to writer and bookseller Anne Patchett. See you then.